Hello, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What we're doing here is we're taking a look at the episodes in chronological order, which means that at this point, we've started with Enterprise. And we're also taking a look at where these episodes fell in our time, meaning what was in the headlines at the time the show originally aired. We're also going to take a deeper dive into the episodes and take a look at the episodes themselves from a critical perspective, kind of nitpicking at times, but we're nerds, so (laughs) that's what we do. And who are these nerds? Well, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I'm a novelist and picture book author. And with me is my brother, Matthew. He's the tech guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Say hi, Matt. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about episode eight of Star Trek Enterprise. This is Breaking the Ice. This is directed by Terry Wendell, and it aired on November 7th, 2001. It was viewed by 7.36 million people. What was the world like when this episode aired, you wonder, Matthew? Let me tell you, you'll never guess what the number one song was. Could it be the same song that's been there every week? (laughs) It's Alicia Keys' Fallen. There we go. Little teaser for our listeners. Tune in next week when we finally have a different song. (gasps) What? I know. It's very exciting. (laughs) We've also had a string uh, on again, off again of, of number one movies that have left us in some cases scratching our heads as we say, what movie is that? I don't remember that. This week, again, another head scratcher. What is this movie they're talking about? They're talking about Monsters, Inc., Oh, wow. Yeah. It was the number one movie. It broke Toy Story 2's record of 57.4 million for the highest weekend debut in November for an animated film, a G rated film, and for the holiday season. It also broke How the Grinch Stole Christmas's record for the highest weekend debut for a non sequel, The Lion King for highest weekend debut for a non sequel animated film, and, and this surprised me, it broke Independence Day's record for the highest weekend debut for an original film overall. Wow. So a little bit of a window into how the scale of money-making in a movie was really different in Mm -hmm. 2001. Mm -hmm. When you think about what opening weekends looked like for Avengers Endgame, for example. Yeah. Which is just numbers that boggle the mind compared to this. But this was considered a tremendous success, obviously, because it is Monsters, Inc., yeah. One of easily one of my favorite Pixar films is a classic. It's absolutely classic. Also this week among television competition for enterprise, a little show called ER was the number one show that week. And as I just mentioned, this episode breaking the ice of enterprise had 7.36 million viewers and ER had to struggle along with only 26.85 million. Slightly different scale. <laughs> Slightly different scale. Yeah. Three times as many, a little more than three times as many people watching. And that is a winnowing viewership. The 7.36 million is less than last week, which was less than the week before. At this point, Enterprise has been losing viewers consistently week <clears throat> by week. Understandable given the era that the show premiered in as we've been talking about up to this point this is a very close to 9-11 post 9-11 world that enterprise appeared in which creates 
for the weird juxtaposition of the idealistic future and how they are envisioning humanity coming together while among the headlines on the New York Times are stories about how President Bush is appealing to Europe to face the reality that Osama bin Laden was seeking nuclear arms. And the FBI was struggling to figure out who was behind the anthrax scare. The major news story for the day that this episode aired was actually about the election of Bloomberg as mayor in New York City, beating Green in a, I remember, uh, kind of contentious election because Giuliani at that point still had the favor of New York City. New York City's mayor during 9-11, he was going out with high popularity, being seen as a strong leader in a tragic event. And he was heavily endorsing Bloomberg at that point. So now into the episode, Breaking the Ice. Matt, do you want to give us a synopsis of this episode? Sure. Uh, Enterprise encounters a comet. Uh, Lieutenant Reed and Ensign Mayweather stop to mine some Elysium on that comet. And to their surprise, the Vulcan ship Timur stops to to observe the Enterprise. And meanwhile, Commander Tucker unexpectedly becomes the only crewman to learn that sub-commander T'Pol has to make a decision between staying aboard the Enterprise or returning to Vulcan for her impending marriage. And she asks for his advice. This episode, a couple of quick side notes. This was the first episode not scripted by producers Braga and Berman, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting that it took us this many episodes to get to the point where they were not directly hands-on with the script. Um, And I think it's notable I think it's I think it's something you can notice in some of the interactions between some of the characters yeah. and the interjection of some humor in ways that it hasn't been present previously. Yeah, you can definitely not, tell that there's a there's a shift in tone. Yeah, I don't, not that Bragg uh, and Berman don't know how to write. That's not that's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying there is a as Matt just said, the tone, there is a subtle shift even in moments of tension. So into the plot we go. This episode takes place probably sometime in late June or early July of 2151. We, of course, are prior to the evolution of star dates within the Star Trek universe. So we actually have calendar dates according to the accepted Earth calendar. And strangely, some episodes, I don't know why, but some episodes have a known specific date mm-hmm. and other episodes are just unknown. So they're, it's a best guess. The last episode that we talked about took place in June of 2151. The next episode takes place in mid-July 2151. So that puts us somewhere around maybe July 4th. So the Enterprise is investigating a comet and Subcommander T'Pol learns that the comet contains Elysium. It's a rare mineral, which Vulcan chemists have not previously studied in detail. And the crew quickly decides that they're going to take advantage of this new discovery and send an away team. They discuss the idea of being able to beam Elysium out of the comet, but it is too deep in the comet. So they will actually have to mine for it. This is, this is also in the setup is also, they kind of keep hammering home on that idea that the Vulcans just aren't very curious because during the debate of whether they should be going down there or not, 
to Paul brings up once again of like, you know, humans and Vulcans have studied thousands of comets yeah. already. Like, why do you want to do this? Raising and, the question of what's yeah. the point. And Archer's response was, but none of them have been this big. It's like, it was just like, there's always something interesting to like learn from and just curiosity. It's just, yeah. it's, it's hammered home again and again over the past several episodes. And it's, I believe Mayweather makes the little joke, but it's not a joke referring to it as Archer's Comet. This is, yeah. you know, the humans aboard the Enterprise are clearly viewing this as like, we're beginning to plant our flag in various yeah. places. They even make a joke about planting a flag on the comet. Um, so Mayweather and Reed are going to be the away team that is going to take a shuttle down to the comet. And meanwhile, the Vulcan starship Tamur arrives, Captain Vanek in charge. And they have a chilly back and forth with Vanek basically saying, we're just here to watch you. Yeah. Archer is, meanwhile, not happy. He has gotten the sense that the Vulcans are basically following them around, observing them. And it's raising his hackles it's it's very evident that this is a personal affront as opposed to this doesn't tie directly back to the andorian incident which but you, dealt it's related to it spying it's, yeah. it's it yeah but that was my question to you do you think there was just enough of attention there or do you think it should have been a more direct line to we know the vulcans have a history of no. spying and going where they're not wanted I don't think that they had to make it more obvious because watching these episodes, it's, it seems plain as day of here's the previous episode. The humans just exposed a major like listening post of the Vulcans spying on the Indorians. So now the humans are not just out there kind of flitting about doing their own weird things. They're actually starting to impact Vulcans. And so now the Vulcans are probably like, we got to keep a closer eye on them because they're kind of screwing things up for us. So it made perfect sense to me that they didn't have to like explicitly come out and say it. But since the last episode to this one, they've said, Archer basically said, you've been fought. We keep bumping into them now. And right. so it's like, it's clear why they are because the Vulcans are taking more of an active role and watching them to make sure that the humans don't screw up any more of their, <laughs> their things. <laughs> so there's this icy conversation where Archer basically says, okay, if you're not going to help, we're not going to try and run you off. But just stay out of our way, basically. While the operation's going on around, this is one of the things I wanted to talk about. This episode almost felt like it didn't have intersecting and parallel storylines. It felt like there was a lot happening aboard the ship, in some cases, kind of free from the other storylines. So it's a yeah. little bit like a day in the life, as opposed to just an A storyline and a B storyline that inform and cross each other, which is an interesting storytelling that at first I didn't quite like that the storylines didn't fully intersect. But then at a certain point I was like, it's adding a lot of flavor that I really enjoyed. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have a big note for myself about this exact thing of mm -hmm. I'm torn because overall, I don't think I liked the episode. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is it was a whole nothing burger. Like there really was no plot. It was just very kind of meandering and it was, excellent character development like yeah some of the best character development they've had in any episode and for that i'm like awesome it's like i feel like i've learned a lot about to paul and archer and tucker and even the relationship with the vulcans it's like they've they dumped a whole bunch of character stuff on us but they did it 
in a way that was not interesting to me. It was just like, I needed more of a through line. I wanted more of a, a, a bigger thread that I could hold on to through the episode. And the fact that these disparate storylines, we're going to talk about this. They never really intertwine ever in the episode. It's like, it's like the, to Paul storyline has no relation to really what's going on. Right. Uh, the, you know, the art, the, the, the archer and the students storyline doesn't tie really into anything at all. And it's yeah. like the Meriwether on the comet is like, that doesn't tie into anything at all. Well, sort of barely, but it's just like the I fact agree. that none of them tied the together note. at the end, I thought was bad. So for that, for me, the episode was a disappointment, even though I really loved the writing and I loved the character development. So it's like, I'm, I'm really torn on, on this episode. Yeah, it seems like it's the intersections are glancing at best. Yeah. Like the, we'll jump forward to discuss the, the classroom interaction, which is a nice nugget yeah. in the story. I yes. like the fact that the enterprise is of course getting classroom mail and which includes drawings from students and questions around like, how do you live in space? What is the spaceship like? I liked all of that. It made sense that it would happen. It only tangentially touches on the main storyline around to Paul's life. When one of the questions is, can people date aboard the enterprise? Mm -hmm. And Archer's somewhat stumbling answer is, well, there's no restrictions against it, but space is at such a bare minimum here. There's no such thing really as privacy. And people trying to interact and have a personal life is going to be hard given mm -hmm. th those circumstances. That is the only rub against the T'Pol storyline, which is effectively she is betrothed. Nobody else knows it. She wants to carry that close to the vest. And Vulcans with the sense of privacy and propriety that they carry with them they end up sending an encrypted message to the ship that when it is intercepted, given all the history, and again, I, I raised the question of should they have drawn a more direct line? I think if there had been a line from Archer saying something to Paul and the lines at the beginning of the episode is, we all know that the Vulcans like to spy. Mm -hmm. Then the intercepted communication is more clearly loaded Mm -hmm. It's it's seen as questionable in the episode, but I think it could have been seen as more of a do we have a spy in our midst mm -hmm. sort of uh, if if it had been tied in indifferently. And I don't know exactly how they could have made the classroom communication more directly cross other than if it had been done in the form of an ongoing dialogue of Archer, almost in the form of a captain's log going back and revisiting his communication with the classroom, mm -hmm. there could have been a wrap up at the end of him coming back and saying, you know, sometimes things aren't what we expect. Right. Reaching out to the classroom and saying our life aboard enterprise is having to evolve and adapt. We are learning. We have to adapt because we expect things and then we don't get what we expect it could have reflected on his personal experience of having been told by Trip, this thing between me and T'Pol, it's private. And Archer's moment 
of coming full circle to the earlier comment about privacy is difficult aboard the enterprise could have been brought full circle into that communication back to the class. Right. But they didn't do that. That's kind of, that's that's why I'm torn this episode. It's because they they never pull the stuff together. It's just different storylines that just, like you said, glancing blows with each other, which is just really, really, really disappointing. And yeah, the whole, the whole, um, to Paul's Tucker storyline, I really enjoyed, and it's clearly laying down groundwork for what's going to happen between the two of them in the coming episodes and seasons, because yeah. it's, it's the root of their relationship and how she made the comment of you were not the first choice of the person that was going to would talk to about right. this, but my, I don't want to introduce somebody else to my private information and you, you already know it because right. you spied on me. So she's basically, I'm just going to talk to you because it's convenient clearly that actually is the seed of there actually is a growing trust between the two of them yeah and to get um, into the details of that plot point yeah the vulcan ship sends an encrypted message to to paul and commander tucker intercepts it and then archer orders sato to decrypt it tucker is the only one to actually read it sato is able to decrypt it but she does not take a look at it because in her mind she's like this is encrypted and personal for a reason i don't need to take a look at it if you're going to so tucker reads it and he learns that it's not a message about the crew or the ship or anything other than her personal life it's about her arranged marriage tucker goes to to paul and i really like the conversation between tucker and to paul but i also like the conversation between tucker and and Archer before he goes to DePaul, yeah, where he basically yeah. says, I feel like I owe it to her to let her know that this was looked at. Yeah. There's a sense of honest, honesty and honor. And he feels like it would jeopardize his relationship with her mm-hmm. uh, and sense of trust. And Archer really respects that. I think that that's a nice character moment between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So Tucker goes to DePaul, he apologizes for having read it, and they have a little bit of a back and forth where she's insulted, um, but she clearly is disturbed by this message. There's a nice scene between her and Flocks where she's complaining about having trouble sleeping. She doesn't depict it as, I'm having trouble sleeping. She simply says, I'm not sleeping. Mm-hmm. And Flocks very gingerly, but also very nicely says, you're going through stress. This is all stress-related, the headaches, the lack of sleep. You need to talk to somebody. You can talk to me, of course, or perhaps there's somebody else you can confide in. And that's when she goes back to Tucker. And she talks about the tension between her betrothed would mean that she would have to return to Vulcan and leave the Enterprise. And Tripp's entire argument against it is effectively, that's not how we humans would do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And arguing for what do you want? And this is a consideration that she has not ever made. Her description of Vulcan culture is that everything is of and for the heritage of the Vulcan Mm -hmm. culture. The individual does not matter. It's an interesting depiction because we're accustomed to Vulcans in the future who make all sorts of personal choices, most notably Mr. Spock, who... At one point, it's revealed that he could have gone to the Science Academy, the Vulcan Science Academy. He just, he chose Starfleet instead, and that is one of the schisms between him and his father. Yeah. So we're already accustomed to a Vulcan who is willing to say, like, I'm going to follow my heart as opposed to 
some sort of expectation, cultural expectation. To see somebody who predates that, she is not accustomed to any Vulcan doing this. No Vulcan at this point is depicted as anything close to having a personal identity separate from the collective. And I think that one of the nice things in this episode is actually a depiction of Captain Vanek. What did you think of Vanek? I thought his portrayal was awesome. It's like I loved just the complete disdain he has for humans. He has zero interest in it. And because he's a Vulcan, he doesn't hide it at all. It's just like, I don't care about you. I'm not, I'm not here to small talk. I'm not here to hang out. I'm not here to learn about you because I find you boring. And what's the point? And just his complete, just honest, just brutally honest, just whatever. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's, you're, it you're referring of course to the dinner party, yes. which is oh, the breaking the ice moment. There's two breaking the ices in the show. There's of course the breaking the ice between the Vulcans and the humans. And there's also the breaking of the ice on the comet. Um, as you may have gotten the sense that Matt and I are talking a lot about the interpersonal relationships, the back and forth between the characters. We haven't really talked a whole lot about what's going on in the comet. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's cut to the chase. Everything that happens on the comet is really kind of not only it's not even secondary. It's tertiary. It's it's, it's a and not and at a certain point by the end of the episode, it's just bad. And I'll get to why yes. as we get to that point. But at this yes. point, there's the dinner party. They have Captain Vanek over for dinner where Archer is trying to extend an olive leaf and say like, let's at least be friendly if we can't be friends. And Vanek's response is to show up to dinner and say, I already ate. Mm -hmm. Engages in no small talk, even when asked direct questions about what's your personal life like? How long have you been captain? And chit chat around different types of Vulcan ships. And he's like, why are we talking about this? So the dinner party comes to a screeching halt. I really appreciated that he leaves with a quick turn of Vulcan phrase to T'Pol yeah. and we never learn Find out what, it is. what he said. <laughs> it, the subtext based on previous episodes where other Vulcans have said to T'Pol, how do you handle the smell? Yeah. He could very well be saying like, this place smells like crap. And, or how do you put up with this nonsense? How do you put up with this nonsense? Yeah. And to Paul in that moment, you get the sense there's a very subtle, and and this is where Jolene Blaylock's portrayal of to Paul, I think she does a really nice job with a character similar to all the all the better actors who've portrayed Vulcans. She's able to do a lot of subtle things. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to to have an undercurrent in your acting, and it's something that. Martin Landau was originally okay. offered the role of Spock and he turned it down, but referred the producers to his friend, Leonard Nimoy and Landau said afterward, only after he saw Nimoy's portrayal of Spock, did he realize that this wasn't an emotionless character. This was a character who was nothing but emotion. It just couldn't be on the surface yep. and that he'd missed an opportunity. And, I think that Blaylock is doing something similar here. There's that sense of embarrassment mm -hmm. through the dinner party that I think is really well done. She portrays that tone of, I both agree with 
the Vulcan understanding of small talk is pointless. Yeah. But at the same time, she's looking at this captain with a sense of like, do you really have to be this way? Do you really like they're trying to do something? Can't you can't you meet them halfway? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she also has a, she has already has we've talked about this before. There's a secondhand nature between all the characters already in the show. And so like she clearly respects the captain. She respects Tucker. She respects the crew, even though she doesn't understand the human way of doing things. So like you said, there's that undercurrent of embarrassment because she doesn't want her her species to be disrespecting these people that she likes. And so it's kind of like this she's stuck between a rock and a hard place in that scene and she does a really yeah. good job portraying that that in a very vulcan way i thought it was very good so as the dinner party comes to an end archer basically accuses the vulcans of spying on them and says you need to leave even having the vulcan captain escorted off yeah. the ship yeah. which i thought I it was that. a very telling moment yeah and Meanwhile, this is the point in the episode where the comet finally crosses paths with the Vulcan storyline. And it's, like I said, the the comet storyline is forgettable and unnecessary. It has some moments that are clearly meant to be charming humor that just come across as kind of goofy at times. Reed and Mayweather, to give a very quick summary, they arrive on the comet in a shuttle pod. They build a snowman. They give it Vulcan ears, they lay a bunch of charges, and then they blow up the charges in order to get deep enough to be able to get to the ore that they're looking for. It's at this point that the ship registers that the explosion has changed the axis of the comet and the location where the shuttle pod has landed and where the crew is excavating the material is now going to rotate into direct line of the sun and the temperature is going to skyrocket. Can I just pause it right there for a second? Yeah. We're in, you and I, 20, at this we point, are in you and I are going to be able, you and I are yeah. going to be able to yes. pick this part apart for probably, I, I, I'm going to give us a goal of being done in less than five minutes, but I think we could probably go for an hour. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. We're in 2021 and scientists today would know when you blow something up on the side of a comet, it's going to change the trajectory of the comet. It's going to, yeah. you know, it's going to cause it to spin in a different way. It's going to cause it to do something. That's something probably a kindergartner could tell you. And the fact that Mayweather just puts these things in there without any kind of, you know, forethought and they blow it up. And it's like, did nobody think that this is going to have an impact on how this thing is traveling through space is just beyond stupid. And it's, it's just so dumb that it was that this was they were caught by surprise that it changed the orientation of the spin it's going to put them into the the front where they're going to be exposed to the star which is going to change change the heat of the comet which is going to cause it to crack and open up it's like that part of it is like very authentic and true and scientifically accurate but the stupidity that they didn't plan ahead is just laughable it's like they're further in a to Paul is their science officer, for God's sake. It's like here, here you've got a culture that's, you know, 30 years in advance of us. They have better technology. They, they're clearly no science. And then they have a Vulcan on board their ship that's even further ahead. So it's like, you can't tell me. You can't tell me that their science officer would have said, hey, May- Mayweather, um, and, uh, uh, you know, make sure that you plant those charges in, a, in, a, in this kind of way to affect the orientation so it spins this direction instead of that direction. It's like they would have planned ahead for this. It's so stupid. 
dumb. It's, I think it's even worse than that because all they're doing is effectively what science crews in Antarctica do today. Yeah. They dig for deep samples of, of stuff. Yeah, they bore And the equipment does not require blowing up a giant crater to be able to get lower than where you currently are. They could have... No, but they could have explained it away of like our, our, the material we, the, the machines we have can only go this deep and we want to actually get this deep. So we have to blow a crater to get lower so that we can get to the core where we want to get. They could have clearly right. explained that, but they really didn't. They didn't, I, they didn't I understand. There. I understand what you're suggesting. I would go one step further and say the entire point of them being on that comet is so that Reed and Mayweather can be in danger. Yes. What ends up happening is the surface of the comet where the shuttlecraft is weakens to the point where when the shuttlecraft tries to take off, it falls into a cavern. It falls down into a, into a chasm where it can't take off for reasons that are never clearly explained. Yep. And because it can't take off, the enterprise has to navigate itself directly above and use their grappling hooks to try and pull it out, like effectively pulling a fish out of a underwater cave. And surprise, surprise, that's not easy to do. Enter the Vulcans who have a tractor beam can do this much easier. The entire point of this is to reach a point of critical mass where Archer has to swallow his pride and Mm. accept the invitation of help from the Vulcans. It is a good goal for the storytelling of yes. the episode. It is a good goal that, that the, the plot line has followed Archer reaching a tipping point with Vanek where he's just like, you guys are full of crap. You won't leave us alone. Get off my ship. And then having to accept the help of that person. That is a good turn in the plot. Mm-hmm. Using this device of the ship being in trouble there are so many things about it that rub me the wrong way. The biggest one being the entire reason they've sent the shuttle pod down to get that material is because the material is too deep in the comet to be able to use the transporters. Mm-hmm. They are on the surface. They are in trouble on the surface. They could transport them out of the shuttle pod. They could transport them off the surface of the planet before they even need to get to the shuttle pod. The moment that they realized, oh, you guys are in trouble because the sun's going to come up, they could have beamed him up right then and just left the shuttle pod. Yep. None of this makes sense from a perspective of like good dilemma for anybody to be in. And the fact that they would have, Reed would have pushed it that close to the danger point makes no sense. It's like, you know, when Mayweather fell and hurts himself and it slows them down to get to the shuttle at that moment, they would have beamed them up. It's like there's, there's, there's the entire, this entire plot is just, like I said, dumb. It was like you said, it was, it was there for one reason and one reason only to perpetuate the, the character development stuff that they wanted to do between Archer and the Vulcan ship. And it's like sloppy storytelling to achieve that goal when they could have done it in a much better way. I even had trouble with Mayweather gets hurt. Of course, somebody always gets hurt. It's always Mm -hmm. like, oh, I've twisted my ankle and now I can barely walk. And only at that moment is it depicted that for some reason they have landed the shuttle pod like a mile away. (laughs) Like 
<laughs> at what point was it revealed that the shuttlecraft is so far away that they are in danger of not making it back? They are told you have about two hours. Yeah. And they don't make it back in time. Yeah. At what point was it revealed that they were so far away from the shuttle pod? Because it's depicted as they land and it looked for all the world like they walked about 100 yards and started digging. Yeah. But then to get away, it looks like they're running a mile. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost as if at that moment, Reed was like, well, we haven't really seen a whole lot of the comet. So why don't we take the scenic route? <laughs> <laughs> With a hobbled Mayweather, they finally make it back to the shuttle shuttle pod and end up having this this disaster anyway the vulcans end up helping everything is is fine there is a moment of reconciliation where the vulcans leave and archer is left with his crew intact and everybody is happy the final conclusion of the moment with to paul and tucker is revealed as to paul basically indirectly when Tucker comes to her and says, are you getting your stuff together so you can leave? And she says, no, there's no reason. That's the moment where her decision has been made clear. She's going to stay on the enterprise. Her relationship to her betrothed is going to end. The insult to the, the groom's family will be what it is. And she is going to do what she wants to do as opposed to what uh, her heritage would tell her she has to do. And then the episode ends with what I think is a very nice callback to something earlier in the episode. Very early in the episode, Tucker is excitedly digging into a slice of pecan pie. Mm -hmm. And he invites to Paul to join him at the table as he's eating. And because invites they're, both, her. they're both having trouble sleeping. They're both That's having the, trouble sleeping. Yeah. And he invites her to join him with... Uh, with a, a slice of pie and she basically rebuffs it as there's it's nothing but sugar. There's no point to eating something like that. Now Which at the end of his, the his response is basically it's comfort food and right. it will, it makes me relaxed and it'll probably help me sleep is basically right. his response. So she, at the end of the episode ends in isolation in her, in her quarters in the conversation between trip and Paul where she's asking his advice. She asks him to her quarters, which has never happened before. He sees her quarters and it is clear that this is her refuge from the humans around her. So this is a, a place of isolation for her. Now at the very end of the episode, we see her in her quarters again. She's completely isolated. She's going into a meditative practice and sitting in front of her with her meditative candles is a slice of pecan pie. I think two things at the same time. One is I think it is an absolutely lovely callback to the earlier scene. The sense of this is comfort food. There's no point, but it tastes good and makes you feel good. And here she is with this slice. My question to you and my question to the listeners is where did this slice of pie come from? Did she go and get a slice of pie because she's now maybe opening a part of herself to interacting and experiencing a little bit more of the humanity around her hmm. or did trip send her this piece of pie? <laughs> I like both. Yeah. I like, I, I like, like both, both interpretations of that, but both of them there, there's nothing in the scene to indicate one way or the other, but which do you think is, is the one that you would like? My interpretation true? when I watched it in the moment 
was she got it for herself because she had asked Trip in that scene where she asked for his opinion. And he's basically saying, what do you want? And she's arguing with him. And he says, why do you even ask me here? And he dumps that last bit of information on her that just like, you got to think about yourself too, and walks out. I think for me, she got it on her own because she actually now understands what he was trying to say to her in that scene. And it's growing trust in his advice. And so as part of his advice, when they were in the dining hall of him saying this is comfort food sometimes you just need to do something for yourself i think she's taking that to the next logical step of like maybe this is maybe i do need a little comfort in my life so i think she's just a little curiosity into her exactly so she's opening up her human side a little bit and she's listening to trip a little bit more so for me the that it wasn't trip giving it to her it's her we're seeing her open up a little bit and by her opening up it's her opening up to trip specifically I'm I'm interested in what the our listeners have to say about this, whether they think that it was a gift from Trip or whether this was her going out and getting it. I remain on the fence. I think both of them have tremendous appeal. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said that there is a really strong component to say like this is about her internal latching on to some of this experience because one of the biggest things about this episode that I think did work and I'm with you I'm on the fence about whether it was a good episode or not, but there are character moments that stick with you. Yes. Yeah. And one of the biggest things is this is the episode where T'Pol truly becomes the previous episode, the Andorian incident where she has to come to terms with the fact that Vulcans have been spying and she has to turn over the images of the spy rig to the Andorian, that's one big step forward. But this Mm -hmm. is the next one, which is she is now committed to the experience of the mission of the Enterprise, which is separate from recognition that her people have been breaking a treaty. Yep, That's one hard truth. This is a personal truth. It's not connected to the larger experience of Vulcanhood. It's her experience of Vulcanhood. And that's why I think that this episode, that's one of the places where this episode really works. Can I just bring up two other things, very small things that I Absolutely. think, um, there are very nuanced things that I want to bring up here. Um, and they're both about Archer and, uh, his scene with the school kids, Scott Bakula's performance of Archer has always been very stilted and stiff. And I loved the portrayal of the school kids moment where he's recording the message because he goes to like 11, <laughs> 11 with his awkwardness. Cause he's clearly very nervous about talking to these kids. And it's one of those, this is, I remember when I watched it originally, this was the first time I realized, Oh wait, Scott Bagley is not doing like a bad portrayal of this character. That's just the character. And it's funny to see him just die, ratchet up that stiffness and trying to be Mr. Proper to a very awkward level. And I thought, I just love that portrayal of, it shows that he's doing a very nuanced performance where you may not think so at first. And this was the first time I recognized that. And the other thing is just the production design of the show, because when he's having a discussion with DePaul in his quarters and he's pacing, he has to keep ducking underneath the bulkheads. I love that so much. It was just like, okay, this is the first real earth ship and it feels like a submarine. It feels yeah. very confined and small and cramped. And it's like, it's so cramped. He can't even pace in his quarters without having to duck. 
fuck? Or he's yeah. going to crack his head against the bulkhead. I, love I was going to say that's the I perfect that. balance of the sort of stiffness you were talking about. Yeah. That, that, that stiffness in the experience, the lived experience of the ship, he's learning how to become more fluid. Yeah. Because he has to literally bend underneath that, that bulkhead and he does it without looking like he's having to pay attention to it. Yeah. So it's, it's a nice moment where it's, it's indicative of he's becoming familiar enough with the ship that he knows where the bulkhead is. He's probably yeah. bumped his head a number of times. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The, the ex- back and forth between uh trip and Paul <clears throat> is some wonderful relationship building in this episode and a, a big shout out to flocks as usual. He's always great. Um, the, the character is masterfully portrayed. Um, and the scene where they're responding to the school kids' letters, Flox goes off on a rambling response to <laughs> can bacteria live in space and has to be cut off yeah. and is clearly embarrassed by the fact that, oh, I was rambling. It, it's a moment where he looks around and, is, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's a lovely character moment for, yeah. for him. And I also wanted to give a tip of the hat to uh, William Ute, who played Captain Vanek, who, as you mentioned, I really liked that portrayal. He is so disdainful at that dinner party scene. And it really, he's doing some tremendous work with Mm -hmm. the job of not showing emotion. Mm -hmm. So hats off to him. So Matt, I understand you've got a deeper dive to take us on this week. Yes. And what's that dive look like? It's it's about the comet, how we both just railed on how the comet was the stupidest part of the storyline here and was just a device to get a couple characters into danger. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I liked about it, though, was them landing on a comet and doing space exploration on the comet to discover kind of origins of where it came from and things like that. And uh, Brandon Braga, when they were doing this episode, he referred to this as he's always he was always continually trying to push the limits of what the series creative staff could do. Because portraying landing on a comet on a TV show at the at the time this was made would of course be very difficult and expensive to pull off, and uh, the staff writer and the science advisor Andre Bormanis, uh, Bar- um, who worked on this episode, said they went out of their way to get the scientific details correct about the comet, but of course they didn't like limit themselves to that because they always you know of course the story has to come first. So if they have to take some liberties, they take some liberties. But they were trying to get this as accurate as they could and uh, <laughs> uh there's a quote that i found which was from writer chris black when he was asked when he asked the production crew if they could turn stage nine into the surface of a comment he was surprised and impressed when the response was yeah when you need it by yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just love that but then taking that and pulling it into like the real world it's 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 really cool to think that we as humans have actually already done this which is just insanely cool it was in yeah. 2000 it was uh, 2004, the European Space Agency launched the Rosetta mission, which was a space probe that traveled through the galaxy and it was, I mean, through the, the solar system. And as it was going through the system, it passed by Earth, Mars, and several asteroids taking close pictures and readings of those, those planets and, and objects. And in 2014, it successfully landed its lander, which is called the Philae onto the surface of the comet to of course take readings and samples and do all this kind of stuff so it was a successful mission from that point of view and one of the things i loved about the the lander was one of the things it had it had two grappling hooks that when it was going to get close and it was coming in it was going to shoot these harpoons 
into the surface so that when it would land, it wouldn't bounce back off. And right. and they ended up not having to use the harpoons, which is even cooler. It's kind of like, oh, they were able to successfully land without the harpoons. But it was not a complete success because it landed in a, cre- in a cre- crevasse, crevice, however you want to say it. And uh, it couldn't get enough sunlight to recharge its systems from the solar panels. So it only worked for about two days before it oh. died. <laughs> but they did get some readings. That's and sad. It, That's yeah. <laughs> yes. So lonely it was a little, lonely little robot on the asteroid. Yeah. So, so even, even though the whole mission wasn't as a raging success as they were hoping for, it still was successful because they did yeah. get readings. They did successfully land on the, the comet. They learned a lot. And one of the things they, I thought that was fascinating was uh, the isotropic signature of the water vapor from the comet um, was determined to be substantially different from the water that's found on Earth. So one of the things they discovered was this comet would not have been the type of comet that would have seeded the earth with water and it was basically completely alien from what we have on our planet it's like that is so i don't know i get really nerdy yeah, it's mind-blowing like, it's it really, mind-blowing it's, yeah so cool it's really astounding yeah so and that's, ability, that was my yeah that was the deep dive i was kind of hoping to dive into here which was just the comet exploration we've actually done what they did on the show which is yeah. just kind of cool and I, I read something similar about the science advisor trying to work very close with the production crew to make things as realistic as possible and scientifically uh, really like like depict things accurately. And this episode was nominated for an Emmy. It actually mm-hmm. lost out to the pilot episode of Enterprise, which which beat them out for visual effects. And you can see it in in the episode, the portrayal of the comet is really intriguing and the effect as the sunlight comes and begins to melt the ice and it turns quickly into shattering and then falling away and turning back to, to liquid. And you think about a a body in space that is going to freeze and cool. It's going to freeze and heat ups to those extremes so quickly. And it's so dangerous for them to be on it. And I think that that is well portrayed. Mm -hmm. Um, the thing that I immediately laughed at was like, oh, let's go to this comet. And of course, it's a it's a comet. It's like, it's not a planet. It's yeah. not a moon. It's a comet. And they land on it and it has enough gravity that they just walk around like, yes. and I was just like, <laughs> all the scientific stuff that you put into this episode to make sure that like you were trying to make it look right. Yeah. And you couldn't even do the typical movie stunting steps, simply moving slower. Like, yeah. You know, showing people having to like, like, don't forget to tether yourself to the ship. And we can't like dig into the snow without pushing ourselves up off the comet. Like little things like that would have been nice. I, I was like, I couldn't even explain like, thank goodness for these anti-grav belts that we have that make us like, yeah, Star Trek, the original series animated show has an episode where they put on what they call gravity belts that allow them to walk on the surface of a planet normally. Right. I'm like, the cartoon did that. Like, can't you guys? <laughs> come on. Come on. Star Trek so, First Contact, when they walk out in the ship, they walk out on the surface of the ship and you they have the you see the little lights on their boots light up and you hear a ka-chunk, yeah. ka-chunk. And it's like, okay, I understand they got magnetic boots. I understand. It's like you got magnet- there's something so yeah. simple they could have done that would have helped. But yeah. So as we get ready to sign off, next episode is going to be titled Civilization. 
Matt, do you have any guesses as to what the plot of Civilization is going to be? I think it's going to be about a group of people that are living together in some kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Civilization? Civilization? Yeah. 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 So a quick reminder to everybody, what does the pie represent? Let us know what you think. And for bonus points, let us know if you were to give somebody an important piece of pie. What pie would it be? (laughs) Would it be pecan pie? (laughs) Is pecan pie the appropriate important pie? Or is there a different pie that's better? Let us know. Matt, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to remind our listeners about that you have going on? Uh, Just check out my channel, Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm talking about a lot of uh, cool tech like modular homes and how they can get to net zero really easily. Uh, Fungus and how it might replace plastic. Uh, So check out Undecided with Matt Farrell. As for me, you can check out my website, seanfarrell.com. And you can look for my books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or at your local bookstore or your local library. Uh, They are available in many places. And if you go searching, I'm sure you'll find them. And if you find them, I hope you enjoy them. If you have any comments or corrections, please let us know. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes. If you're on YouTube and watching our smiling faces, you can just leave a comment directly below the video. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe. Please don't forget to like. And please don't forget to share widely with friends, strangers, and friends of strangers. We'll talk to you next time.